anyone remember what we were talking about last night? What? Suffering. Suffering. Oh, yes, suffering. Suffering, yes. Okay, suffering and why we have suffering, our causes of suffering. Well, and what we can do about suffering. I think that's what we were talking about yesterday uh, led us to identify, I believe, three different things that we can do about suffering. And that's to stop. If we decrease our resistance, then that will decrease the intensity of our suffering. And if we understand how our karma creates our suffering, then we can be mindful of the kind of karma that we create for ourselves. And the third thing was to understand the, the very basis for suffering itself. Uh, and if we do that, then we can bring uh, an end to suffering uh, entirely. So, this is really, the, the last point is what we're talking about, and, uh, uh, well, we, we could say much more about the second point, too, but we'll come back to that one. But the last point, uh, the Buddha taught the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. And... The truth of suffering is, uh, and this is what we must uh, be be clear on. The truth of suffering is that uh, the the word actually is dukkha, and it means it has a much broader meaning than just suffering. It means every every form of unsatisfactoriness. Uh, and, of course, suffering, what we usually use the word suffering to refer to, is an extremely unsatisfactory state. But there are all, other, all kinds of other uh, degrees of dukkha that permeate our lives. Dukkha includes physical pain, and it includes... Uh, mental pain. And the physical pain is an inevitable part of birth, uh, sickness and injury to the body, old age and death. Psychological pain, mental pain, suffering in the sense of the word of mental suffering, we experience that uh, when we uh, want something that we don't have. You want something that you don't have, then you suffer. Or when you lose something that you have, you suffer. Or when you have something you don't want, you suffer. Pain would be an example of that. Uh, but aversion, all of those things that produce in us aversion, dislike, unpleasantness, those are things that we might have that we don't want to have, we would be want, want to be free of. 
So having what you don't want is suffering. Um, things, there is another, so see, th- these are the forms of suffering that we experience. As far as the unsatisfactoriness of things that contributes to suffering, things are impermanent. The reason, so we are bound to lose the things that we want, or the things that we have that we do want, we're bound to lose them because everything is impermanent. There are, uh, the, everything is conditioned. And we've talked about the emptiness and the experience of our, uh, the, the experience of anything is a result of causes and conditions. And many of those causes and conditions arise from within us. So one aspect of the suffering that we experience in the world is that uh, something doesn't give us the satisfaction that that we think it will or doesn't give us the same satisfaction that we thought it would. because something has changed in us. The thing itself is just the same. But, uh, and you, you've all had that experience, something that makes you very happy, and then after a while, uh, he doesn't make you happy anymore, and you want him to leave, right? Or something like that. <laughs> um, so, so because things are, are conditioned, the uh, happiness that they give us is transitory, and when that passes away, then we're left with the, we're dissatisfied, we're left with dissatisfaction. So that's another uh, sense in which we have suffering, or dissatisfaction. Another thing is that uh, to obtain those things which we think will provide us pleasure, often takes great effort. And uh, sometimes we find that once we've achieved the reward, that it wasn't really worth the effort. And that's another kind of dissatisfactoriness that we experience. Now, if we, the, the reason that I took the time to, to sort of identify the different kinds of suffering that we have. Oh, and there's one other kind of suffering, too, that I should mention, too. And that's the suffering that comes when we feel like our lives are meaningless, that we don't understand. Uh, When we understand the suffering nature of life, and we say, what is the point of this? Why do we strive so hard uh, when all that we, uh, all all that we'll attain we'll lose. Everything is precious to us, we eventually lose. It takes so much effort. All we have to look forward to is sickness, aging, old age, uh, sickness, aging, and death. Uh, we go to so much trouble to uh, raise our children and protect our children and guide our children. Uh, for what? So that they too can go through the same thing. What's the point of this, the endless cycle of birth and death and birth and death and, and the sense of uh, there being no 
no meaning in it, being meaningless. That's another kind of suffering. But anyway, the reason for just clarifying all these different kinds of suffering is so that we can move on to the next thing that the Buddha said, that uh, there is a cause of suffering, and he identified the cause of suffering. Um, And he identified the cause of suffering as craving, which specifically means wanting and, and not wanting desire and aversion. And uh, he said, in effect, that craving is the cause of suffering. And he said that when you cease to crave, when you cease to have desires, and when you cease to have aversion, then you will cease to experience suffering. That's the third truth of the cessation of suffering. There's nothing very mysterious about this. Desire is wanting something that you don't have. It is being dissatisfied. Desire and dissatisfaction are two faces to the same thing. And depending on how attached we are to the thing that we don't have that we want, then proportionally that's how much suffering that we will have. Same thing with losing something. Now, if you already have something that you want, uh, you don't want to lose it. But the fact is that you were bound to lose it. There's absolutely nothing you can hold on to. You may lose it sooner or you may lose it later. And uh, the more attached you are to it, then the more you're going to suffer when you do lose it. But a lot of our suffering occurs before we've ever lost the thing that we uh, hold precious. Because we're afraid of losing it. We know we're going to lose it. Or even if we don't know for sure that we're going to lose it, uh, we know it's a possibility and and we're afraid, afraid of it. What these things have in common with them is not accepting things the way they are. This holds true for aversion, just as it does for desire. Desire in the form of wanting to have something that you don't have. Uh, That's not accepting things the way they are. And uh, wanting things to be different. Aversion is the same thing. If you have some unpleasantness or something that you dislike, and you want it to cease, that's wanting things to be different than the way they are. Wanting to hold on to the things that you want, or that that you desire, that you have, is uh, not accepting the fact that everything is impermanent and everything passes away. So what you find in the nature of craving, in both its positive and its negative form, positive form being desire and the negative form being aversion, that both forms of craving involve a non-acceptance of what is. And just automatically that means you're in a state of dissatisfaction or dukkha. So 
craving and dukkha are so closely related that they are, uh, well, you can see why Buddha said one is the cause of the other, right? So let's explore how you can be free of craving or, or how you can be free of suffering by being free of craving. And that's what the third truth is, that the end of suffering is the, is the end of craving. So if the essence of craving is not accepting things as they are, then the end of craving is accepting things as they are. It's non-resistance to what is. And as a matter of fact, resistance to what is is a kind of craziness. So, then it, now it makes sense why in the immediate present, if you can't do anything else, you can at least reduce your suffering by reducing your resistance to what is. Yes? Uh, I, I may be jumping ahead. Uh-huh. So, so in, in order to give up craving entirely, one must uh, understand fully uh, not... Uh, not self and impermanence. It, it, otherwise, it will be impossible to give up craving entirely. That's right. That's 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 absolutely right. You you jumped ahead, but it was just where I was about to go. So that's fine. I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so that's what what uh, Michael says is absolutely correct. That uh, you you can't. Uh, the, the, to overcome craving or to overcome suffering is simple. All you have to do is stop craving. But now that's the new problem. How do you overcome craving? Because it's built into us. And what is the basis of craving? Well, uh, craving, as we've said, is desire and uh, aversion. And uh, actually... Desire and aversion are always accompanied by ignorance, according to the Buddha. The ignorance that he referred to is ignorance as to the way things really are. That specifically, that they are impermanent and selfless. The objects that we crave are selfless, and we ourselves are selfless. And as long as we are ignorant, and the thing is too, when we say ignorance, there's two things. Ignorance is the simple absence of knowing something. That's one kind of ignorance. But this ignorance is more than that. It is believing something that is not true. So maybe instead of ignorance, we should call it delusion or confusion would be a more accurate way. So wherever there is desire or aversion, there is not just simple ignorance, not just the absence of, of knowledge or the absence of understanding, but there is a false knowledge, a false understanding, a false view, that there is a self, and that self is permanent, and that there are objects of uh, desirability and objects of aversion that are in themselves, if not 
eternally permanent, at least uh, from the point of view, relatively persistent. But they have some, I mean, of course we know that that many things don't last forever. And uh, the, the uh, uh, automobile that you might crave, when you know it doesn't last forever, intellectually, but you still think of it as some substantially real thing that uh, you focus your attention on, you focus your craving on. And this is the ignorance that sustains craving. So uh, we moved a step back from the problem of suffering to the problem of craving, and now we see that, that the root of the problem of craving is ignorance. Now, we have a habit, we have a built-in habit of acting out of craving and aversion. But we can't really change that as long as the root is there. Because, you know, uh, it's like you you, uh, uh, squash a plant down, but if the root's there, it's always going to grow back. And so if the delusion as to the nature of things persists, then the craving is always going to return. And this is the way that we experience it. It seems that craving is such a, a, a deep, inescapable part of our human nature that how can we possibly overcome it? And... Uh, What's very special about being human beings is that we have the capacity to acquire wisdom and overcome ignorance. That's the only reason that it is possible to get rid of uh, craving, is because we have the capacity, we have the kind of intelligence by which we can come to a place of understanding and the understanding will obliterate the ignorance, which is the root out of which the craving goes, grows. And when the root is destroyed, then the craving itself can be destroyed. And once the craving is gone, then there is no further cause for suffering. So, the end of suffering, we're very, very fortunate in being being human beings and having this capacity. Uh, Many kinds of sentient beings, we can see that they would never have the capacity to overcome the root of craving. And so they are are condemned to uh, continue to operate from a base of craving and to experience suffering. So let's look at let's look at the ignorance, of course. And the Buddha said that it is ignorance of uh, the three characteristics, which actually are related to each other: impermanence, selflessness, and dukkha itself. And it's also ignorance of uh, the fact that everything is dependently originated, that nothing exists 
from its own causes. But everything arises as a result of other causes, uh, other things that are its cause, and it passes away when those causes have, uh, uh, when that causal influence is exhausted. So as you see, this relates back to impermanence. Absolutely everything is impermanent. Everything is also selfless in that its very existence as well as its nature is dependent upon its causes. And so it doesn't have a a self-nature of its own. So that things are impermanence and that things and we ourselves are selfless is the reason that they're suffering. To, To cling and attach to things that are impermanent and don't have a nature of their own will inevitably lead, lead to suffering. Right? Because sooner, sooner or later uh, the, the facts about those things are going to recoil on the person and create suffering. The other thing though is the is our own selflessness, anatta. Because in here is the idea that there is some sort of substantial self that can be made happy in some sort of permanent way through the manipulation of these things and the acquisition of these things. So the way to overcome craving is to overcome ignorance about these things. Now the other, so so you have, just to be clear, you usually say that there's three characteristics, but there's really five different things that we can identify, just to be really clear. There's the impermanence of everything. And now we're talking at sort of the most basic level of understanding, that still assuming that there are things and that things only have a temporary existence and then they pass away, but impermanent. Um, So we can say that things don't last. We can say that things don't have their own nature. So when when I think that having this thing or having this person or being in this situation is going to make me happy, I am ignorantly assuming that the cause of happiness is inherent in that thing. I'm also assuming that the that I myself am of such a stable and persistent nature that the inherent characteristic of happiness uh, or the inherent characteristic of that thing that I believe will produce happiness in me will always produce happiness in me. Are you following me? We make that assumption. And those things together uh, we are failing to understand impermanence the emptiness of objects and the emptiness of ourselves. 
By clinging to those things, we experience suffering. So the fourth thing here, the fourth thing that we really need to understand is that any sort of clinging to any of these three things will bring suffering. And then the final thing that we need to understand is the dependent nature of things, dependent origination. And that's connected to the impermanence, because because things are dependently originated, they are impermanent. It's related to the emptiness, because things are dependently originated, they are empty. But it also is a description, dependent origination is a description of what happens within us that perpetuates our suffering. Our suffering is due to the arising of craving and the clinging clinging to objects of craving. And uh, dependent origination says that, first of all, the whole principle of it is causality, that when this is, that is, when this is not, that is not. But the specifics of it are describing what happens in us as individuals. Let's review what we are as individuals. We are, we consist of sensations, the perceptions that we experience as a result of sensations, the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that arise in association with those feelings and perceptions, the mental formations that determine the nature of our our, our perceptions, and that also give rise to our intentions and actions. And then consciousness that is taking taking these sensations and perceptions and feelings and mental formations as object. That's what we are, is a collection of all those things. What happens moment to moment is there is, where there is consciousness, this this is the beginning of this process, where there is consciousness, there is name and form. Well, name and form is those five things that we just talked about. So where the consciousness and the five aggregates always occur together. Consciousness is one of the five aggregates. So they're always together. Now, when there is consciousness and the five aggregates, uh, there are sense organs and sense objects, and these will come in contact with each other. And they, so we will have sense experience, sensory experience, and that will give rise to feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. And experiences of pleasant and unpleasant cause craving to arise. And craving causes attachment, clinging. And attachment and clinging perpetuates our state of becoming. And becoming is always wanting to be different than what we are, wanting things to be different than what they are. So these are the links of dependent origination. I don't know if you're all familiar with them or not, but. It's a process. It's describing a process that one thing leads to another. What happens in our mind is that we have an experience of something. You know, there's the sensation, the perception, the feeling. 
And we either like it and crave its continuation or repetition, or we dislike it and we crave, crave its cessation or its avoidance. When the craving arises, we make the object of this real. That's what clinging means. That's what attachment means. It means to make something real and the mind grasps onto it as though it's real. If we go back to what we talked about before, all that you have is sensations and the objects that are made from the sensations are made by your mind, right? Your mind invents a story to explain your sensations and so the mind projects the object together with its nature. And the mind also, in the same act, creates the idea of self. And so then you become this self that has this desire. This process repeats over and over again. Now, at the beginning of the process, I just said there's consciousness and, and there's the uh, are the uh, five aggregates. But the form that these aggregates are in is the result of previous experiences. Every experience you have contributes to these karmic formations, the mental formations. And so that is what's going to determine what the, your mental formations are going to determine what kind of experience you have when the process repeats itself. So at the end of this process, you, what we produced was a self who, because of craving, was attached to the idea of having things become in some particular way that they weren't and experiencing a state of dissatisfaction. So that's the mental formation that's present as a result of that, is a being in a state of dissatisfaction or suffering and who has initiated some action to try to obtain that which they crave. The action has consequences as well. So this will keep repeating over and over again. And what you have is what you experience, a being who is perpetually in some degree of dissatisfaction and perpetually doing things to try to create a state of satisfaction. And only succeeding temporarily at best. Then, of course, if we look beyond the individual, it becomes more complicated, too, because the, do, the things that the individual does while undergoing this process impact other people. And, of course, uh, so 
suffering spreads itself. Our craving and our aversion causes us to to commit actions that impact on other people. And their craving and aversion causes them to perform actions that impact on us. And so we have this whole mess of, of dukkha everywhere. Right at the center of this is a sense of, of self. Why are we dissatisfied? It's because we can we can imagine something that we think will be better for ourselves. And so we try to make that happen. So it comes out of our sense of self, ultimately. Our ignorance of self, our ignorance of the nature of things, our failure to understand the nature of impermanence, and our failure to understand the emptiness and the dependently uh, the dependent nature of everything. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like I understand clean causes suffering before I had a deeper understanding of impermanence and not self. Uh, just through meditation. Um, I noticed that every time I clean, you know, yeah. cause suffering and what is that right. um, the the suffering is gone. Right. Yes. And and at least to a certain level, it doesn't seem like um, um, we need to have a deep understanding of not self or impermanence before we understand clean. You know, before we can let go of the clean that causes yeah. suffering. Right. And that's what I was saying, that if you stop, uh, another way to say stop resisting the way things are is to stop being attached to things. How far can that go? Well, there's, there, there's a limit. You can, you know, as long as you have good mindfulness and uh, as long as the cause of your attachment, the cause of your clinging is not too strong, then you can succeed in letting go. In meditation, when you find that uh, that there is clinging, attachment, resistance present, uh, it's relatively easy to let it go, and you find it immediately relieves the dukkha. But when you're in a situation, think about the kind of situations you encounter in your life. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it has to do with like our own family members, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, our own uh, spouse or son or daughter or mother, etc. The attachment is very right. strong. So. It's, it's a very good tool, it's a very valuable thing to have to work with, it's a good thing to remember and to be mindful of. And of course, the more that you can weaken all of your attachments through mindfulness and through understanding, then the fewer problems that you'll have. But you'll still be vulnerable. And there's always the potential for some situation to arise that is going to trigger such a strong reaction of craving in you that the clinging and attachment occurs and the suffering occurs and you just, you can't let it go of it. So that's why if we took this as the solution, it would be very unrealistic. And it would work to a degree, and it does work to a degree, and it's very useful and valuable. 
but it is by no means an ultimate solution. And uh, as a matter of fact, for it really to be particularly effective in the world, it requires a lot of practice of purification and virtue just to bring yourself to the level where your clinging and attachment is sufficiently weak that you can manage to uh, let go of it that easily. And of course you have to have enough power of mindfulness, mindful awareness, to be able to recognize when it's happening and remember that this is what you need to do. So it's good, it's valuable, it's wonderful, it's useful, but it's also very weak medicine against a very powerful inner force. Right. Thank you. But you make it more powerful by recognizing the way that you karmically condition your mind and making it a point to, and once again, this requires great mindfulness, but this is how you go about weakening these attachments and weakening the power of craving uh, is by uh, being mindful of the unwholesome mental states that arise that produce the negative karmic effects and then uh, doing your best to overcome them and replace them with positive ones. Now this will make it possible to let go more easily and it will also diminish the strength of the craving that arises. But it too is not a permanent cure. It's a really important one though and it's really valuable. The permanent cure is that it is when you have insight in meditation, when you acquire deep insight into impermanence and you acquire deep insight into emptiness uh, and and you recognize the suffering nature of everything, then you have an experience of your mind stops this constant process of the, the dependent origination of just regenerating moment after moment the same process. When that happens, then you have, when that happens, you have an experience that changes the way the mind works. It provides the mind with a different basis of understanding at a very deep, very fundamental level. Now this does not mean that you say to yourself, aha, I've got it all figured out. Because just having it all figured out won't change the way the mind works at this deep level. You have to have, uh, that's why you have to have a profound direct insight that communicates this uh, understanding to a level of your mind that is not accessible to your ordinary uh, conscious uh, discursive analytical faculties. And when it makes that change, you might not even realize that that change has been made 
until you discover that you, well, by definition of what stream entry is, it is overcoming of the fetters of attachment to the belief in a personal self and also the other fetters that you overcome are the belief in rites and, and rituals and the uh, 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 overcoming of doubt and the dharma. But the key one, the most important one of all, is you, at a really deep level, your mind no longer attaches to this belief in the self that it creates. That's the change. And it, if that change takes place, then everything becomes much easier after that. But until that change takes place, any of the things that you do, like changing your karma and practicing mindfulness and practicing unattachment and practicing letting go, will be effective but of limited effectiveness. And they will be vulnerable, excuse me, they'll be vulnerable to to being overwhelmed by circumstances. And, and by the sheer force of the craving that arises out of that belief in the self. Yeah? It seems like the self is no more real than um, like an arcade, you know, video game character. It's like if, you know, when we identify that as us, you know, when that character is in danger, we feel the fear. But then, but then you know, when we examine um, uh, the way we perceive ourselves in that arcade character, it's no different. That's right. It's not. It's the same. It's that same brain mechanism that is, uh, or mind mechanism, brain, mind. What's the difference anyway? It's that same mechanism that is generating that same view. And then uh, you know, when you play the computer game, you identify with that self. And just the same with the dream character. The dream if character, or if you read a novel or you watch a movie or something like that, where you strongly have, have you. I mean, we, we do this. We watch a movie, and if if we can really relate to to the character, to a character in the movie, and the plot is believable and everything, we'll find ourselves experiencing everything as though it's happening to us, right? We'll experience the same shame and embarrassment, or the same, you know, happiness, or the same fear, or whatever, as if it were happening to us. So, which is just more evidence. You know, if there were any doubt left, it's just more evidence that the self is a construct. Now, that's what we. So that's where we're kind of getting to. To we're going to have to talk about this self and how you come to really clearly understand it. But the magic, the wonder, the glory, the incredible thing that happens is that. Uh, when a person has a change take place in their mind so that they no longer attach to this belief in self, they'll still have self-perception, but they won't attach to it as being substantially real. Then they've achieved the first stage of enlightenment. They will still experience desire and aversion, but the same way that, you know, you cut a plant off from its root, the flower and the leaves still last, right? And as a matter of fact, if you put them in water and nourish them, they'll last longer. 
but there's other things that you could do, put them in different circumstances, and they won't last so long. It's the same way. With the first stage of enlightenment, you have permanently cut the root. But you may still, but, you, but you're left with uh, the tendency for craving and for desire and aversion and all of the habits. And you're also left with the habitual ways of thinking that are related to the, the self. Still egoistic ways of thinking and egoistic ways of behaving. The difference is that when they arise, that you they are transparent and they don't have the same forces before, but they still arise. And that's the first stage of enlightenment. And it is said that a person may be reborn seven times before they've completed the process of enlightenment. But there's, of course there's no need to. The second stage comes when they realize that well, initially, with uh, no longer being attached to the view of self, there is a tremendous decrease in suffering. But over time, these habits reassert themselves, and the person will find that, well, there's not ever the same degree of suffering, but there is still a lot of unsatisfactoriness in life. There's still craving and aversion, and they will recognize that that is a problem, and that will lead them to the second stage of enlightenment, where they become totally focused that until they overcome craving entirely, then they're all they're going to continue to experience uh, states of dissatisfaction. And that would be the person who is described as the as the once-returner. They have to... They have to do the work of finally destroying the, the craving, the desire and aversion. Even though the root is gone, the leaves and the flowers are still there. And so they have, that has to be destroyed. Yes? Does it no, no, Arhat is the fourth, the fourth stage is Arhat's the fourth. The second stage is a person who uh, craving is diminished, desire and aversion are diminished but still present, and who is completely focused on the need to overcome craving once and for all. And how is that done? Through meditation and Meditation and, and, and practice, yes, and uh, it is basically happened in the same. It happens in the same way. There is going through the same experience of profound insight and realization into uh, uh, realization of uh, uh, the true nature of, of things. That's repeated for each of the four stages of enlightenment. But we, and each time it's repeated, the, it has a further purifying effect in, in the sense of destroying more of the uh, fetters. So the once-returner, the person who, who has achieved the fruits of the second path, 
still has desire and aversion, but in a very weakened form. When, and they will do the work to overcome that completely, and then they achieve the third stage of enlightenment, which is called the non-returner. Now this person has completely overcome craving for, the craving involved with things of the senses, desire and aversion to things of the senses. So in this world, they are free from suffering because they have, desire does not arise in response to sense objects and those things of the sense realm, those kinds of situations and circumstances in the, in the sense realm that arouse our desire uh, and, and lead to our suffering. Likewise, this person has, does not have aversion to the things in the sense realm and so they cause no more suffering. But this person, the third stage of enlightenment, the anagami, the non-returner, what they do have, they still have a sense of self. They're not attached, they're not attached to the idea of self, a personal view of self, but they have the sense of being separate. Not of, not of any sort of nature that this is who I am, this is what I am, this is what I need. But they still have a sense of being a separate existent being. And so they still have a craving for separate existence. So the fetters that remain, there's five fetters that remain for this, for the person in the third stage of enlightenment. Uh, and the most important one of these, and the others are all related to it, is the fetter of, it's called the fetter of conceit. The conceit that I am. It's just the inherent sense of being separate. And the craving that they have, they have no further craving for things of the sense realm. So when they say that they are a non-returner, they will not return to this realm. But if they don't achieve enlightenment, they will return to either a form, uh, uh, one of the higher realms, the deva realms, either a form realm or a formless realm. These are realms that correspond to the, the jhanas. The form realm correspond to the first four jhanas and the formless realm to the second four jhanas. Uh, so they are also called the fine material and the, and the formless realm. There's another names for them. So they, have, they still have craving for existence, which is why if they don't become arhats, they will be reborn one last time in uh, one of these uh, Deva realms. Okay? You, you said that uh, enlightenment is an accident, and uh, it sounds like um, uh, the right conditions have to align all at the same time. Yes, they do. And uh, one of the conditions that has to align um, is the understanding of the three marks have to all align right. simultaneously. That's right. That's a, that's absolutely right. They have to the understanding of the of the three marks of the three characteristics has to line up simultaneously, 
And the person, at the time that they line up, has to be in a, straight, in a state of very profound equanimity, non, non-reactivity. What happens if like, you align but not the fair one? <laughs> they, they, they'll, they'll come close, but they won't make it. Because it only, only, one, only one is required to uh, maintain the continuation of the cycle of dependent origination. What happens is there is an experience it's associated with pleasure and pain and uh, craving arises but it, this is the point at which it can be cut off. That it can only be cut off if there is no, if there is in that moment nothing that allows the person to grasp. So if they're still attached to, if, if they don't understand anatta, selflessness, then uh, they won't make it. If they still have the sense that that object that, uh, that that craving is associated with has some kind of reality, permanence, uh, non-emptiness of its own, then they won't succeed. And if they are not totally convinced that uh, that there is only dukkha to result from from the fulfillment of the craving, then the force, the whole force, it, it will still have enough momentum to carry on to the clinging and the attachment and the becoming. So the only way, it's, it's like it has to reach this point and stop, it has to have nothing that's going to give it enough momentum to go on to the next stage of development. So, But uh, anyway, to become an arhat is to overcome that final inherent sense of I am and that one last craving for separate existence in the fine material or the immaterial realms. So what you can see is all four stages of enlightenment. The first stage is overcoming the attachment to belief in the personal self. And the last stage is overcoming that last inherent sense of self, of, of separateness. Yes? So where does the sense of... Uh Separateness come from, come from where? Um, it's, uh, well, <laughs> it, it comes from the nature of the way that these five aggregates function. So that's why we say it's inherent. When the five aggregates come into being and the mind begins to function, the mind uh, from sense data, the mind projects a reality, and that reality, you know, it, it has to have a center, a center point or a center of gravity, which is the uh, that is the inherent sense of self in this projected world. That that there is, and and there, in fact, at the level of relative reality, 
there is a separate sense. The five aggregates are a separate self. It's just that they're not a permanent and abiding self. They are an empty self that's projected by the mind. I'm not sure if I'm expressing that clearly. The mind, that's the thing. that That's why all of this work is necessary, is to bring the mind from the way it inherently and naturally generates a perception of a universe that consists of self and other than self. That's why all this work has to be done, because that's, that's just the way it starts. And that's the, the nature of the way it is from the beginning. So it doesn't actually come from... It's not like it's come from something else. Although, in a karmic sense, you could say it's perpetuated. You know, when your attachment to... Uh, or, or e- even a non-returner's attachment to uh, a craving for a separate existence is produces the karmic result of aggregates coming into being with that inherent sense of self. So in that sense, that's where it comes from. But it's not like you picked it up along the way. It's, I don't seem to be... I don't feel like I'm making myself as clear this evening as I sometimes do and would like to. That's the meaning of inherent. It is there from the inception. I think I tell, told this story on last retreat. So I have a classmate, and he come out of an absorption state. Mm-hmm. So he experienced this kind of a, a transferring, transferring from a wholeness to a separate consciousness of self. Mm-hmm. So he's still searching for the answer why it happened to this way, mm-hmm. not, not the other way. One, <laughs> just a, I'm guessing <laughs> maybe it's the you know in the first game of the Big Bang, you know, the universe, you know, mm-hmm. began to explore. And so actually there's a relative perception, uh, separateness. So that consciousness slowly evolved. Well so if we yeah. uh, this uh, this is something I'd love to uh, get into, although we're already past the time. But yeah, I, I don't know, maybe that's something we can talk about tomorrow at another time. Uh, and, and it has to do with what I was talking about last night. If we take the, you know, if we take the uh, relative reality description of the universe, Big Bang, evolution of matter to, you know, uh, galaxies, suns, planets, organic beings, conscious beings like ourselves, uh, with predispositions, we we see that the inherent sense of self uh, and uh, desire and aversion and the behaviors based on that are completely natural, completely understandable. You know, and as a matter of fact, to the extent that it couldn't be any other way. But the point is that we are at a level of consciousness and capacity where we can step out of, outside of that evolutionary necessity. So that would be a good one to talk about, I think. It would be, I, I'd like to talk about that. So remind me of it or bring it up again. So, yes? Just a very quick question. To clarify the term, 
Farhat also means bow destroyer. Am I putting that term on the right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The right category? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so there's dozens of epithets like foe destroyer and things like that. Uh, are foe. Foe. Oh, foe destroyer. Yeah, destroyer of, of, of the... The, uh, the destroyer of, of the enemy. The enemy is ultimately totally subdued. The, the but anyway, my, my whole... What I really want to get across is that The, the root of the problem, if we say that the disease is suffering, the cause of the disease is craving, and the craving arises, and, and the craving will always be there so long as there is uh, this attachment to and uh, experience of self. And that disappears by... Not in, in two different, very substantially distinct phases. When the person reaches the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry, they overcome the belief in the constructed view of self. But they still experience this inherent sense of self. And it is not until the third stage of enlightenment, well, it's not until the fourth stage of enlightenment, when somebody becomes an arhat, that that inherent sense of self is finally completely overcome. And so that's why this happens by stages. It's because, you know, it's... Because it does. (laughs) It's not that you get over the sense. And the other thing that I would point out to you is that that this thing that we call awakening or enlightenment produces a change in the way the mind works at a level that, as I say, you you, you don't even necessarily know that it's happened. It is often associated with a, with a singular, very profound experience that the person can use as a reference and say, this is when it happened, but not necessarily. The change happens deep within the mind. And the person, it's, it's possible the person might not have known about it. The other point is it's possible to have all kinds of remarkable, amazing experiences, even those that are very close to the attainment of enlightenment. But if they don't produce that deep change in the way the mind works, then nothing is, is permanently altered and, and can go can always slide back. So when we say people do have uh, profound experiences, spiritual experiences, of not, of, of not having a self, the disappearance of the self. And have ex- very wonderful experiences of being one with everyone. And people have very powerful insight experiences 
of the emptiness of everything. But you can have these experiences without that critical transformation that we call awakening or enlightenment taking place. You'll be very, very close, but it may not necessarily have occurred. And what's that transformation? What's that? And what's that transformation? That transformation is that that part of your mind that, well, that basically your mind no longer believes in its own idea of self. That part of your mind that creates the idea of self continues to create it because it's necessary. You know, it's necessary for functioning too. For this five aggregates, for the body, for the mind, to survive and function in the world, the mind has to be able to distinguish between self and other enough to make sure that this body gets fed and its needs met and things like that. The mind continues to produce a sense of self. But the difference is that the mind no longer believes in it. So there is no longer the same reaction when uh, uh, this sense of self is offended or endangered or uh, so forth. That the and, and uh, suffering is not as pronounced. There is a tremendous easing of, of the suffering that's normally present. There is an understanding of things as they are. There's an understanding of the emptiness of self and the emptiness of things that comes from a very deep level. Um, when I say understanding, put it this way, it's not an intellectual understanding, it's an intuitive understanding. It means that the way you experience things is from that place of understanding emptiness. So, so one of the, you know, the greatest fear of most people is death. Yeah. So naturally this person will be, will have far, far, far less mm-hmm. amount much, of fear. Much, much less fear of death. Of death. Yeah. Because there's... That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of self is so deep. That's right. Uh, this person will be much less bothered by pain. I have much, much less fear of death. It's, uh, will not... Uh, have such egoistic needs as uh, they might, and and other people will see the difference in this person, and these changes will last. They're permanent. As a matter of fact, they're not only permanent; that over time they become uh, more more pronounced and more distinctly developed. How, how do you tell from the intellectual level of you know good understanding of not self versus that uh, the the one you just described? You mean subjectively, how do you tell? Yeah, subjectively, how do you tell? Subjectively, it's because there is not, in the recognition of the emptiness of things and one's own self-nature, there's not an intervening thought process. Mm. Oh, okay. I see. It is intuitive. It's intuitive. I see. That's right. That's how you tell. That's exactly how you tell. It just, it's intuitive. It's not dependent upon a, a thought process. There's nothing that needs to be remembered or recalled or anything else. No, it's 
Time to begin our morning meditation. <laughs> okay. I think I think that's uh, that's enough for tonight. So uh, let's take uh, a break for you to stretch, go to the washroom, things like that, and we'll come back and sit together. <laughs>